Well, please take your copies of God's Word in hand and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, if you um, don't have your own Bibles, there should be Bibles available for you in the chairs. Uh, This is on page 604 of the church Bibles. So Isaiah chapter 43, where we pick up this morning at verse 22, and we'll read through chapter 44, verse 5. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities." I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Amen. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. In the lobby, uh, amongst our outreach materials, there's a wonderful little tract that's called Two Ways to Live. If you're looking for a handy little tool just to have available when you have the opportunity to present the gospel to someone, I highly recommend it and encourage you to take as many as you need. They're free and for you. That little track, Two Ways to Live, is structured around the theme of creation, fall, and redemption. And when it talks about our fundamental problem in sin, it says... We don't like someone telling us what to do or how to live, least of all God. And so we rebel against Him in lots of different ways. We ignore Him and just get on with our lives, or we disobey His instructions for living in this world, or we shake our puny fists in His face and tell Him to get lost. However we do it, we are all rebels because we don't live God's way. We prefer to follow our own desires and to run things our own way without God. When it comes to a diagnosis of our condition in sin, I think that's a pretty good and faithful one. In our natural state, we do prefer to follow our own desires and to run things our own way. We see it in the world around us. A determination to think that we know best and that we will live life on our own terms. We see it in our children, don't we? I bet I can guess what your toddler's first words were. It was probably mine or no. 
They are the most used words in a little child's vocabulary. Their sinful hearts bubbling up and demonstrating that their first instincts as they tackle the world around them is to try and run things their own way and conform the world to their will. It's the very thing that Adam and Eve attempted to do when they disregarded the law of God in the Garden of Eden and ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Despite living in God's very good world, despite having received only good things from the hands of God, their sin lay in their their determination to live life on their own terms. And just as original sin entered into the world with that first sin, the guilt of our father Adam coming down and being born by everyone who came after him, so that original sin stands essentially, is the continuing pattern of all other sins that we commit. Think about how our sins are described in the Bible. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. In Galatians 5, verse 19, Paul says, The deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Or Colossians 3, 5, Paul describes what is earthly among us. He says it is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or even think about how the sin of Judah was described in the preface to this book. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23, the condemnation comes against Judah. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. What do these all have in common? And in one degree or another, they are what Paul describes in Galatians 5.15, a devouring of one another, a using of one another for our own ends, for our own satisfaction, for our own advancement, for our own pleasure. It's pride. It's what A.W. Tozer called the self-life. Perhaps the most heinous thing Perhaps the most sorrowful thing about sin is how it recalibrates our hearts and it turns us in on ourselves and makes us lovers of self rather than lovers of God. It rewrites the catechism, doesn't it? And it tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. It's horrible and it's heinous and it's ugly. But perhaps the most grotesque thing about it is just how deceptive it all is. Even to the point where we can twist the worship of God into the worship of self and not even realize that we have done it. What is it that Jeremiah said? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful beyond all else and desperately sick. Who can discern its ways? And so in our pride, we are not only condemned to the world of those dark and scandalous things, but we can even take the good things and so warp and contort them that they then become evil. 
We can even be caught up in the worship of God all the time using it in reality for our own ends and really to serve the worship of ourselves. It's the very thing that God through Isaiah here condemns the exiles for doing. And you understand the exiles were shocked when the Babylonians came and swept across Palestine and took them captive in 586 B.C. You understand that the Judeans, they were, they were absolutely blindsided by what happened to them when they were taken into exile. Right? One of the things that makes the exile so heartbreaking is that these Judeans just did not see it coming. And in Isaiah, we read a lot of God's proclamation through Isaiah to the Judeans. Isaiah, as we have seen, is essentially a book of declarations, essentially a monologue in which God preaches to the Judeans, urging them to see their sin and repent of it. But in Jeremiah, we get more of a dialogue. In Jeremiah, we are given an insight into how all of this landed in the hearts of the Judeans to whom Jeremiah and Isaiah preached. And in particular, we get a lot of the back and forth between Jeremiah and the people who consistently tell him that he is wrong. Now, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. What is it that led Jeremiah to weep? It is that no one would believe him when he warned them of the coming judgment. Right? Just like Isaiah, who was warned by God right at the beginning of his public ministry, that the people to whom he preached would keep on hearing but never understand. So it was with Jeremiah. The people just could not conceive of what Jeremiah and Isaiah were warning of, and why? Well, on the one hand, because in their pride, they thought they were strong enough and savvy enough to protect themselves. That's what we read of King Ahaz in chapter 7, wasn't it? He was so sure that he could play the political game, that he could head off any looming disaster. But on the other hand, the people thought that they were doing enough to keep God happy. And so what Isaiah and Jeremiah said was impossible. They genuinely thought that they were faithful in their worship. Now, to us, that's inconceivable, isn't it? We know the story. We know how all of this shakes out. We've heard the prophet's condemnation of them. But to them, they did not think that there was a problem. They, as far as they were concerned, had not abandoned God. They were still going to the temple. They were still going through the rituals of temple worship. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still observing the feasts. As far as they were concerned, they were being faithful. They were doing what they were supposed to do to keep God happy. They were following the ceremonial law. They were doing their part. So how could the prophets then say that God would bring this disaster upon them? It just didn't make any sense. But Jeremiah 7 tells us of how they would go up to the temple and go through the rituals of worship and then declare, we are delivered. Deceived by their sin, they thought that they were worshiping God while all the while they were just worshiping themselves. It's the same problem with the Pharisees in Jesus' day, isn't it? 
They fasted, they prayed, they fastidiously kept the ceremonial law, even adding ring fence laws around each commandment of God to make sure they didn't even get close to breaking that divine command. What does Jesus call them in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6? He calls them hypocrites, right? A word that originally referred to theatrical actors. He says, he says to them, you're just wearing a, a mask of devotion to God, but in reality, you're doing it all so that you might receive the praise and the adoration of those who are around you. They sought to use the worship of God and worship of themselves. It's a danger for us as well. It is a sobering reality that there are people who sit in church and who go through the motions of worship, but who are doing it all for themselves. And remember how Jesus starkly described it in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, on the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A lawlessness, a, a disregard for God, but all of it couched in terms of Lord, Lord. And you understand it is in every kind of church, right? We can think of those in big box evangelicalism. And we can think perhaps as a caricature, but we think of those who are doing it because it makes them feel better about themselves. Jesus is their therapist. He is their life coach, and he exists to make their lives better. Right? There are those who are doing it in the mainline churches, who are doing it because the ritual and routine of it all makes them feel comfortably religious. And the social action makes them feel like they are making a difference in the world. But we must be careful. We must realize this is in our own house too. There are those in confessional conservative denominations. There are those sitting in PCA churches this very morning who are doing it not out of a devotion to God, but out of a devotion to themselves. Perhaps rigorous theology stimulates them intellectually. Perhaps they feel that conservative theology just fits better with their conservative politics. Perhaps they're pugilistic and they just like a fight. And the idea of being part of a countercultural movement gives them tremendous satisfaction. There's always a danger, no matter what kind of church we are in, that we are self-deceived. And while we go through the motions of worship and maybe say the right things and do the right things, we are doing it more for ourselves than in humble adoration and obedience of and to the triune God. That's what was happening in Jerusalem before the exile. And the utter tragedy of it was that they had missed the precious and free gospel that lay at the heart of it all. Right? What was the temple? It was, in a sense, the gospel made visible. It was an enormous stone monument to the grace of God for sinners. And if you were there in pre-exile Jerusalem and you walked into the 
temple, what is the first thing you would have seen? You would have seen the sanctuary standing before you. You would have seen those great wooden doors covered with gold that gave access into the holy place. You would have seen those great pillars on either side of it, Jacob and Boaz. You would have seen the enormous basin called the, the sea that the priests washed in. You would have seen the bronze altar on which the burnt offerings were being consumed. You would have seen the priests in white. And it was awesome. And you would have been struck by the holiness and the glory of the God who dwelt symbolically within this earthly palace. But it would have also struck you as you're convicted of your sin and your unworthiness to approach such a God. You saw those glorious doors into the sanctuary, but you knew you could not go in there. Your sin meant that you could come only so far and no further. Even the priests had to ritually cleanse in that sea so that they could do their work. The altar testifying to you that the wages of your sin is death, and you can only approach this holy God because He is willing to accept a substitute to bear the guilt of your sin. As you beheld the glory of this God, you felt the conviction of your sin, but then you would have been struck by the grace of God offered to heinous sinners. That altar saying to you, the wages of sin is death. And be sobered, sinner, by the reality that you can only come here because that animal has died in your stead, but understand the gospel that God is willing to accept a substitute. You can't go through those doors, but the priests can. And the high priest can even once a year go all the way into that inner sanctuary, that holy of holies, as are engraved on his ephod, that man symbolically bringing all of the people of God into the nearer presence of God. The temple proclaiming this good news, this, this gospel made visible that God is holy but gracious, that God is righteous but He is merciful, that He has in His supreme kindness made a way for a vile sinner like you to be reconciled to Him. Like what did the temple preach? What did those stones cry out? What did the smoke rising from the altar testify to? Well, it's chapter 43, verse 25, isn't it? that God is the one who blots out transgressions for His own sake and promises not to remember sins. But the Judeans had missed it. Isaiah 6, 9, they kept on hearing, but they did not understand. They kept on seeing the temple, but they did not perceive what it said. And so their worship was meaningless. That's what Isaiah means here in these verses where God says to them that they did not call upon Him, they have not brought their sheep or the burnt offerings or honored Him with sacrifices. Not that they did not actually bring these things to the temple, because they did. But it was meaningless. And it was worthless. They went through the motions, but they missed the meaning. And so they had caused an affront to God, and they had burdened Him with their sins, and they had wearied Him with their iniquities. 
How does Malachi describe it? Malachi chapter 1, verse 10. The almost exasperated cry goes out, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar. They brought sacrifices, they brought offerings, but they did not call upon the name of the Lord. They did not worship him. They did not cast themselves upon him. And the result, verse 28, was that God did shut the doors of that temple. God profaned the priests of the sanctuary, the princes, the priests of the sanctuary. He delivered them to utter destruction, and he delivered Israel to scorn. He called Nebuchadnezzar to come and physically desecrate the temple that had been spiritually desecrated by the self-serving worship. Why did God send them into exile? Because despite His manifold goodness to them, despite the preciousness of the gospel that was preached to them and depicted before them, they willfully, stubbornly, and deliberately turned a deaf ear to Him and turned a blind eye to him and tried even to put him in a box so that he could be controlled and conformed to their will. They were sent into exile because instead of glorifying God and enjoying him forever, they sought to glorify themselves and enjoy themselves forever. And if we just ended at the end of chapter 43, we would, in a sense, end where we would expect to end, with a declaration of judgment and no more hope held out for them. It is what such cynical sinners deserve from the hands of a holy God whose goodness and mercy have been so abused. But it doesn't end there. And notice the grace that immediately follows this exposition of their sin and its consequences, having brought the Judeans face to face with the utter grotesque nature of their sin, having shown them how deep their sin ran, how deep their depravity ran, even to the point that they would use their devotion to God in the worship of themselves, God now comes to them in chapter 44, verse 1, with one of those rich and precious conjunctions of Scripture. But you understand, we have to always keep this in mind when, when we read Scripture, that the verses and chapters are not in the original. So don't let the editors of your Bible make you believe there's a break here, because there's not. And right hard on the heels of this condemnation comes these precious words, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Why does God continue to confront them with the heinousness of their sin, with the ugliness of their sin? It is because, as Sinclair Ferguson put it, grace makes sense to us only in light of the sin to which it is the remedy. Grace makes sense to us only in light of the sin to which it is the remedy. God, through Isaiah, continues to show them just how deep and ugly and twisted their sinful hearts are, so that He might then show them how unimaginably great and beautiful His grace to them is. What was it that we heard from John Calvin a couple of weeks ago? 
commenting on the first seven verses of chapter 43, Calvin said, Israel had openly polluted himself, yet God declares that still his covenant shall not be made void because he is always like himself. It's the same message that comes here at the beginning of chapter 44. Despite their great sin, as ugly God remains, chapter 43, verse 25, God remains, He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He still remains that God whose grace was preached by the stones of that temple. Their sin was great, but it had not changed Him. And so, in His manifold grace, He comes to them now as they bear the consequences of their sin, as they face the weight of their cynical self-worship, and God says to them that He will bring the deep transformative salvation that they desperately need. Look at how He addresses them in verses 1 and 2. O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, O Jacob, my servant, Do you remember back from chapter 41, we noted that the names of Israel twisted together like this show that there is no minimizing of sin here. God addresses them as Jacob, that name that encapsulated the sin of the patriarch, the deceiver. But there's also covenant faithfulness here. They are Israel, the name that encapsulates God's covenant commitment to them despite their sin. And just as Jacob was always both Jacob and Israel, so it is with these Judeans. They are sinners, undoubtedly, but they are justified sinners. But how could they be? After such heinous sin, how could there be a word of hope? How could there be a word of covenantal hope when they had so deliberately and cynically broken the covenant? Well, just as we saw in chapters chapter 43, verses 8 through 13, God comes again, and He says that in order to save His people, He will take all of the burden of the covenant promises on Himself. He is first to the Lord, capitalized Yahweh. He is the one who formed Israel by His covenant with Abraham. And He is going to take these sinners And He is going to do what they could never do. And He is going to so transform them that their self-focused hearts are renewed and their eyes will be opened to be fixed upon the Lord so that, verse 5, their lives will be consumed not by a self-focus, not by a self-life, not by a, a pride and a will worship, but rather their lives will be consumed by a delight in Him and an eager desire to serve Him and glorify Him. God says that He is going to take these self-deceived sinners and so make them new that they become Jeshurun, a name that means the, the upright one. In the place of their sinful self-righteousness, there will come a true righteousness in which they will delight in God, and they will serve Him gladly. But how will this come about? 
How can a people whose sins are so bad ever become righteous? How can they ever be called upright in the sight of God? And Isaiah says, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, taking dead men and making them alive. Now, do you remember how Ezekiel saw this depicted in his vision? Ezekiel 37 he sees a valley of, of dry bones. And Ezekiel is told, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And their sin, they are dead. Not just sick. Not just fatally wounded. But they are dead. Utterly unable to do anything for themselves. Dead like dry bones bleached by the sun. But here through Isaiah, God comes to them and not minimizing their sin, says to them, I know your spiritual death, but I will give you life. That's what he says here, isn't it? That the gospel, this gospel that shines so brightly in these verses, in their sin, they are like a dry and dusty desert, a place with no capacity for life. But God says he's going to pour his water upon it. And he will bring streams to flow through that dry ground. And by his Holy Spirit poured out upon them, he will bring life where there has only been death. If these Judeans were to be saved from their sins, it had to be through the work of the Holy Spirit bringing them up from their spiritual death and giving them life opening their eyes from their spiritual blindness and giving them sight, renewing their hearts, and in the place of a heart of pride, giving them a heart of praise. And you understand, this is not just the Judeans, but what we are given here is a vignette that gives us an insight into the universal human condition. If anyone is to be saved from their sins, it has to be through the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing them up from their spiritual death and giving them life. It has to be through the work of the Holy Spirit, opening their eyes from their spiritual blindness and giving them sight. It has to be through the work of the Holy Spirit, renewing their hearts and in the, in the place of a heart of pride, giving them hearts of praise. By faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are washed away. And we are declared to be Jeshurun, upright ones, righteous ones in the sight of God. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to, reunited to this holy God. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are given new life in the place of the living death of our sin. But what this passage says is that you will only ever put your faith in Christ if God first renews your heart and draws you to himself. 
It's the very same thing that Paul celebrates in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, in our sin, we are not just sick. We are dead. And we don't just need to be made better. We need to be made alive. And we need that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit if we are to see our sin and repent of it and flee to Christ for the forgiveness of it. Our sin runs so deep, it is so corrupting, so disabling, that we are wholly and utterly dependent upon the grace of God if we are to be saved. Ours too so blinds us, so warps our hearts, that we are wholly unable to any spiritual good, but entirely reliant upon God's work in us by His Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, wasn't it? John chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In our redemption, as passive in our reception of God's grace, as that infant is when they are born. But what do we do with this? Well, first, we give praise to God for our salvation. First and foremost, we celebrate the goodness of God that has come to us in the work of the Holy Spirit when we deserve nothing but condemnation. We give to God all honor and glory and praise for His tremendous grace lavished upon us. We give thanks to God for the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and for the new birth that we have received from Him. We realize that in the gospel, there is no room at all, not even an eighth of an inch, not even a little crack of an opportunity for us to ever stand in front of a mirror and sing, how great thou art. 
we realize that the gospel tells us that we are wretched and depraved, but that we owe everything to God because of his mercy and grace shown to us in Christ and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. The first thing that we do is that we look into, uh, into this and we see the black depths of our own sin. And we see that we are far worse than we ever dared believe. We see that our sin is far worse, far more twisted, far more contorted, far uglier, far more deadly than we are ever tempted to give it credit for. We look up. And we give praise to God that he has had mercy on a vile sinner like me. That he has been gracious to a worm like me. And that he has loved me. And why? Simply because he wanted to. We give praise to God that he has done everything needed to cleanse me from my sin, everything needed to declare me righteous, everything needed so that he could call me his own, not simply providing a sufficient Savior in Jesus Christ, able to cleanse me of my sin if I believe in him, but also giving me that heart of faith so that I am able to believe in him. We give praise to God for his covenantal faithfulness that is greater than all our sin. But then we pray. We pray for those who do not know him. We pray for those who rebel against him. We pray for those who rage against him. We pray for those who feign the worship of him. We pray for the self-deceived. We pray for the hypocrites who feign a worship of God, just play acting all the time, trying to use him in their service. We pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts as he has worked in ours so that they might be given eyes to see Jesus Christ as he really is on hearts to truly love him and faith to reach out and hold him. We pray, knowing that prayer is and must be our first work in evangelism. We pray, believing, as E.M. Bounds put it, that talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. We pray because without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, there can be no true spiritual life. And so we pray for revival and we pray for awakening and we pray that God would be glorified in his building of his church. As Isaiah continues to show us more and more of the depths of our sin in these passages, it is only ever so that we might see more of the heights of his grace towards us. Let's not shy away from the wickedness that is exposed here, but let us see it 
so that by seeing the sin, we might delight in the grace to which it is the remedy. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, it is hard for us to see us, to see ourselves in such terms. We like to believe ourselves to be good, to be not that bad. But your word exposes us. And it shows us that our sin is so wicked that we would even attempt to use the worship of God for our own ends. Lord, if there are those here this morning who are doing that, we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, that they might repent of it, that they might see and savor your grace and rejoice in Jesus Christ. We pray for others across this land who hold to a form of religion but deny its power. Lord, may you bring an awakening that the dead bones might live, that vile sinners might be redeemed and brought in to sing the praises of our merciful God. Guard us, Lord, for we know that that root of pride still remains stubborn in our hearts and still constantly tempts us to try and shape this world according to our own wills. Lord, may your Spirit who made us new continue his work of sanctification within us that we might more and more see our sin more and more put it to death, and more and more give you the glory in all that we think and say and do. For Jesus' sake, amen.